So, uh, I'm going to pray here in just a moment. I know there's already two strikes against me coming here. First, I'm not Ian, and so, like, I'd rather listen to Ian than listen to me, so I know that already. Two, I am a Chicago Bears fan, which you should question my discernment now on uh, anything I'm about to say after this. Uh, So, I know that. But third, and this is the reason why I'm confident to stand here today, is because we share a gospel together. We share the good news of Christ together. And so I'm going to rally us this morning around 1 Samuel. You might not be super familiar with this book. I wasn't as familiar with this book as I wanted to be when I started preaching through it. It's a fantastic book. And you're going to see clues and echoes throughout this passage today. You should just have your mind already tuned to see clues and echoes of things coming in Christ in the New Testament as we read this today. Uh, So would you just join with me and pray one more time and ask God's favor now? Thank you, God, for this awesome morning, this Sunday, to gather as your people and to do it in unity because we're in Christ together. What a joy. Thank you for bringing every person here who's physically here, those who watch online. Lord, we pray that you would bring your Holy Spirit to bear this morning, to give me words. Lord, I do not trust in any of the words that have already been prepared. I trust in you. Lord, I know you know the the needs of this church and these people that sit here today. And so would you personally encounter every person today with your spirit through the mechanism of this sermon based on the truth of these holy inspired words from 1 Samuel so that we would rally together around the gospel one more time today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So when Monday morning hits, whether you go to school or whether you go to work or whether you are Grocery shopping, whether you pick up the phone and call a friend, you're likely to encounter this question from the person you're talking to. What did you do this weekend? Right? Common question. You want to find out what happened? What did you do? You want to share what you did, right? And there's a lot of there's a lot of answers to this question. None of them are right, none of them are wrong, right? So there's nothing. I did nothing this weekend. I just chilled. Maybe if you're in college, you're like, I slept in till 2 p.m. Uh, maybe you went to the movies with some friends. Maybe that's what you did this weekend. Maybe you watched the Bears pull off a surprising upset of the Philadelphia Eagles. Likely not. Likely that did not happen this weekend. Uh, Maybe you read a good book. Maybe you went to the park and played bocce ball. Maybe you went to a wedding or played modern warfare all night long with your friends. Here's one thing that you almost never hear. What did you do this weekend? Oh, me? I picked up weapons, and I went to battle. Not a common answer, right? Not the most popular pastime. I took up arms, and I went to fight. It was gruesome. You should have seen it. But think about it. That's actually what happens every single time the church gathers together in Jesus' name. That's what happens every single Sunday. When we gather together, when God's people gather together, we are actually going into battle. Now, let me just tease this out because this might seem a little hokey, but but think about it with me for a second. What exactly is a battle? I looked it up. Here's how Webster defines it. A battle is an extended contest, a struggle, or controversy. A battle is a combat between two persons or two parties. A battle is engaging in a fight or a struggle. That's exactly what happens here every Sunday at this church. Hopefully not in the ladies' bathroom, 
Hopefully it's not happening in the children's ministry check-in line, but it's happening every single Sunday, not against one another, but when we come together as God's people in Christ's name, we are engaging in a fight and in a struggle, listen, to believe what God says is true. That is an active battle that you are waging as a Christian. You are engaging in a fight to believe that what God says is true. You're, you're fighting to believe that, that what's true is more sufficient than the lies that you tell yourself or you tell your friends or they tell you all week long. You're combating lies with truth. It is a struggle against sin. It's a struggle against an enemy that wants to destroy us. It is not an easy task. It takes effort. It is, in fact, a battle. The battle is this. Will you conquer or will you be conquered? Will you conquer or will you be conquered? That is the question that is being asked and and answered by you every single week, really every single day and every single moment. Now, lest you think I'm just making this up, the New Testament actually describes the Christian life in these terms. I'm going to give you three scriptures just to help you feel the importance of this before we hit 1 Samuel. So in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul, the apostle, tells us, put on the whole armor of God, right? Armor. Then he says, says that there's a sword, and there's a belt, and there's a chest plate. So there is, there is a reality that this is a, a war, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, we are not waging war against, according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare. And so you can see that this is a metaphor for doing battle. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're, do, we're doing battle together. We're going out to battle. We're going to do it through 1 Samuel. Now what we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 11 is a physical battle. They're actually taking up swords and arms and they're fighting. But the main issue that we see here in this passage is the same battle that we fight today. And here it is again. Will you conquer or will you be conquered? Will they conquer? Will they be conquered? Will you conquer? Will you be conquered? And so we're here now in 1 Samuel. I want to just briefly explain. I'm going to give you the one-minute summary since I preached this in a series so there was context. I'm going to give you the one-minute summary of 1 Samuel to bring us up to chapter 11, okay? So Samuel, first seven chapters of Samuel revolve around the life of Samuel. He's born to Hannah. He becomes God's judge. So we're transitioning in the life of the nation of Israel from judges now to a king. And Samuel becomes this judge that's raised up. And in chapter 8, the nation begs Samuel to go before God and ask for their own king who's going to be just like all the other nations. And it's a, there's this really, really interesting line at the end of chapter 8 when it says that the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, there must be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and this, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what the king's supposed to do. He's supposed to lead and fight the battles on behalf of the nation. And so they beg God for this. And even though it's a disastrous plan, and God knows it, he's going to give it to him anyway. Chapter 9, there's this character named Saul. That's who we're going to be looking at today. And Saul goes f- looking for his donkeys that got lost and finds himself connected to Samuel, where he is anointed as the new king. But that's not the only thing that happens. Then in chapter 10, they bring him before the entire nation, and they draw lots to see who's going to be the king, even though he's already been anointed. And sure enough, wouldn't you know, it's Saul. Saul is now the king. In the end of chapter 10, Saul has become the king over this nation. And the ending of chapter 10 is really important as we come to chapter 11. 
They cry out, long live the king, verse 24 of chapter 10. And some people went away and said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Saul goes back to his hometown like every good king would. No. I mean, most kings would set shop in the palace, right? And so he goes back to his hometown, and there's this awkward ending. And so we're left coming in chapter 11. They've got a king but they're not, who's supposed to fight their battles, but they're not exactly sure if he's up to task. So that's the one-minute summary. Let's look at chapter 11. We're going to see three scenes this morning, beginning first with this kingdom that's now been established being threatened. So read with me in verses 1 through 4. So Saul is now the king, and then chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all of the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's a lot of fighting happening. There's a lot of battles. Most of them are with the Philistines. The Philistines are from the west. And now here in this text, we see a new group of people. There's the Ammonites who are from the northeast. And it's the first time we've seen them here in 1 Samuel, but they're actually long-standing enemies of God's people, reaching all the way back to the book of Genesis and the days of Lot. We see the Ammonites appear again in Deuteronomy. They're, they're enemies of the land. They stand against God. They repeatedly show up in the book of Judges, and God is against the Ammonites. And so here, as we begin chapter 11, we meet Nahash. Nahash is a bad dude. Nahash wants to subjugate the entire nation of Israel under his kingship. He's got a plan. He's going to come in. He's going to besiege the city. He's going to take over. He's going to wipe everybody out, and he's telling them he's going to do this in advance. And so the men of the city come up with this awesome plan in verse 1. They come back to him and they say, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Now just, just remember the context. I know it was only the one minute version. But the context of chapter 11 is they finally have their new king. Long live the king, the people were cheering at the end of chapter 10. They finally have the one who is supposed to go out and do battle for them. And here without any other options, they quickly come underneath this servanthood of, of Nahash. They, they, they abandon their loyalty to Saul. They abandon their loyalty to Yahweh. They, they come up with this plan. If you don't kill us, we will serve you. You will be our king. Very similar to the way that we operate even today, right? Some circumstances comes our way. We're like, I'm all in for Jesus. Jesus is Lord, we've sung this morning. And then circumstances come our way, and then we're like, uh, whatever it takes to get out from underneath that, I'm willing to do. Well, Naash proves to be just as skilled in negotiating as he is at war. He makes them this offer that they can hardly refuse. He says, I will make a treaty with you. Hey, good, good, good idea. Here's the terms. I will gouge out your right eyes, 
and bring disgrace upon all of Israel. Now, when I first read that, I actually laughed until I realized and remembered this is real. This is history, right? Like we're, we're not reading a fake sto- a, a Marvel superhero story. This is real. They're, they're, they have two options. They're either going to be wiped out, completely destroyed, or they're going to have their right eye plucked out. I don't know how valuable your right eye is to you. I'm assuming that it's pretty valuable to them. And that they're, they're, they're probably thinking, what's behind door number two, right? Because I, we made this option here, and then it got backfired on us. They have no leverage whatsoever, and it's like as if Nahash is just toying with them. Like, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a week. They're like, please give us a week. And he says, I will give you a week. And if there's no one to save us, they say, we'll give ourselves up to you. And so he's got them now scrambling across the countryside in order to do what? Look at verse 3 with me again. Then if there's no one to save us, to save, to rescue, right? To hear the whispers of what's coming into the New Testament through this. If there's no one else to save us, we will give ourselves up. And now this is the backdrop for the entire story. Will anyone be the savior? Will anyone come and help them conquer? So the news begins to spread. It goes to Gibeah. That's where Saul is. That's where Saul lives. And and, and look at what the people do. All of the people wept aloud, verse 4. Now, the king, Saul, is there in their city with them. And they get this news, and they don't respond with like, oh, yeah? Well, look at this guy over here, right? They weep. So no one here has any confidence whatsoever in the king who was just appointed. Nahash has no fear of Saul. The people who he came across in Jabesh Gilead, they have no confidence in Saul. Even the people of his own hometown have no confidence in him whatsoever. He is a, he is a weak leader in their sight. They begin to weep. Otherwise, you would think they would immediately call Saul. But no one calls Saul. No one thinks that Saul, the anointed king, can do anything to save. And so they're looking for someone. Can anything else save me? Can anything else save me? Will anything else deliver me? How often do you do that in your life? You know who the king is. You know who the one that saves you is. And then things come into your life and you're like, yeah, but trusting Jesus is really hard. Can anything else save me? Can I get some more money? Can I get someone else to come in? And you're making plans. It exposes their lack of faith. Verse 5, look at 5 with me. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Now this is what I love about the Old Testament, because you read that sentence and you think, there's nothing there, right? There's nothing there, it's just just a detail. But actually, it tells us a lot about Saul's view of his own leadership, because why is Saul, the newly appointed king, out in the field tending to the oxen? Because Saul is the son of Kish, the farmer. And so Saul, who's been anointed now, he's the one that's going to lead him into battle, and he goes right back to doing his daddy's work. Saul hears this news, and he says, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Now Saul hears this news just like every other citizen in the land. Think about how you would hear this news, right? No one will step up, no one will step up to save you're going to lose your right eye. Who are crying, they're thinking about their future, they're wondering what's going to take place. Every other citizen responds this way. Notice Saul's reaction to the present threat. He doesn't cry. We're going to look in verse 6. He doesn't weep. He doesn't pout. He doesn't suck his thumb in the corner and cry out for his mommy. 
Here's his response. The king's response in verse 6. Listen. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. The righteous response against the enemies of God is anger, righteous anger. The Spirit of God rushes on him. And, and if you study 1 Samuel, and if you study the book of Judges, this has happened a few times. In the Old Testament, the Spirit didn't come and rest permanently on most people like it does to us in the New Covenant. The Spirit came for, for empowerment, for an assignment. And so we see that happen with Samson. The Spirit comes upon him. And then, and then Saul, the Spirit comes upon him in chapter 10 and fills him. And he's supposed to take out this garrison of Philistines, and he doesn't do it. And now we see it come again. The Spirit has come on Saul, and he hears this, this situation, and he, he's filled with anger, and he takes what can only be described as, as righteous, kingly action. Look at verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Like we would send out a group text, right? Maybe with like oxen parts emoji, right? We'd send that out. You imagine being the messengers, you having to carry these like pieces of animal and you know, this is the message. But what happens when they go out to the nation is that dread falls upon the people because they know that they know that they have really no choice, right? They have dead oxen if they don't come out, or they're going to have their right eyes gouged out if they, do, if, they, if they don't come out. So, so they've got really no choice. They've got to come out. So dread falls upon them. The dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So if you thought getting a jury summons was a bad day, you know, this is like, all right. So these men come out, and look at how many people come out in verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. This is a formidable army. Saul, who's been filled with the Spirit of the Lord against the enemies of God, has a plan. Verse 9, and they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Now, that's utterly confusing for my people in Arizona, right? Because the sun is hot when it's 2 a.m. It's like 100 degrees out in Phoenix. But for them, this meant the midday, they understood the message loud and clear. Salvation was at the door. Salvation was coming. It's good news. Salvation's coming. Salvation's coming. A Savior has been found in the person of Saul. So when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh parentheses, the good news. They were glad because that's what good news does. Good news gladdens the heart. Good news is cheerful to the soul. Good news makes you filled with confidence and joy and hope. Good news is what we all long to hear. The fear and the dread is now replaced by gladness and joy because that's what the good news does. And so in their joy, the people of Jabesh concoct a plan. Verse 10, therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, so now they're speaking back to Naash, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So here's what Naash is thinking. 
He's, he's, I can just picture him putting on the infinity stones. He's like, I'm about to kill them. And, and he's like been toying with them. He gave them this week, and they couldn't find anybody. And they're like, that's all we have. Tomorrow, do what you want. I bet you he went to bed that night a very happy tyrant, you know, slept really well. But what Nahash didn't realize was that Saul and his men were traveling under the cover of night about 24 miles to get to Jabesh-Gilead from where they are and to the camp of the Amorites. And so they go to sleep. The enemies of God go to sleep, resting easy, verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. Remember, they're traveling overnight in the cloak of darkness, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the picture here is what what was complete destruction before them has now turned into complete salvation. They were about to be destroyed. Now they are totally saved. There's some guy in Jabesh who was like, maybe if I start the Jabesh eye patch company, Like, I could make a fortune here if this goes through. And he's crying because he's like, no, because there's no need for it anymore because they've been totally saved. They've been rescued by coming together as one man, united under God's king. Do you hear the echoes? One man, united under God's king. They scatter an army until no two men are together. Now, the result of this battle is total and complete salvation. This is a joyful thing here, brothers and sisters. Now, this joyous story keeps building to a main point. We're almost there. Third, we're going to see the kingdom renewed. We've seen the kingdom threatened, the kingdom response, and then the kingdom being renewed. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, after this great salvation, there are some people that say, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. So I gave you a little bit of a snippet of this in the one-minute summary, but there were some people who were saying, can Saul really be the king? And now, and, and, and look, nobody thought Saul was the king. Nobody thought he was really going to do anything, right? But now that he's won the battle, now they're like, let's get those other guys, and let's bring them out, and let's kill them. And Saul says, this is really important, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul understood what we must understand, which is that the Lord has won the victory. Saul wants the people to know that the king who fights for Israel, his name is Yahweh, that there's one who stands behind all of the battling that they face, and it's God. He wants to give homage where it's due. In this particular passage, even though Saul is really kind of a, kind of a up-and-down character in the Bible. In this passage, he wants the attention to be given not to the vice king, Saul, but to the true king, God. The battle will not be defeated without a true savior, and that true savior is God. Here's where all of it builds to in verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom We're going to come back to that. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all of the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now here's what I want you to see. 
the way this story unfolds itself, Saul was already anointed king in chapter 9. He was sovereignly declared to be the king in chapter 10. But the people didn't treat him as if he was the real king. They didn't recognize him as the king that he was. When, when trouble came, they got fearful and they looked for another savior. They looked for another source apart from the one who was called by God to be the savior. So the story builds and now they have found him and he is the king, the one who saves. And so Samuel, the judge, the prophet of God, calls them to renew the kingdom at Gilgal. It's, it's really a, a consecration. That's kind of a big word and an old word. But it simply means set yourself apart again. Not enough to have done it in the past. Set yourself apart again today, right now, for the purpose of this kingdom. That's what it means by renewing the kingdom. And so they did. They offered a peace offering to the Lord. And in the doing of this, all the men greatly rejoiced. Now, the Old Testament was written to instruct us who live in the New Covenant about God and about our need for Christ and about the coming Savior and about redemption and about restoration. The Old Testament tells us something about the coming kingdom. There is a kingdom that is larger than this kingdom that's coming. And this story crescendos and crescendos and crescendos finally to victory. And we see them here. This is so important to us as Christians. We see them here cherishing God's victory as it drives them into a renewed commitment to his kingdom. See, they're, they're celebrating his victory with joy and it drives them into a renewed commitment to his kingdom. Oftentimes in church today, church life is like this. You come, you sit, you go home, right? A lot of people, maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is even the first time you've come to church in a long time. And if that's true, I'm grateful that you're here this morning. But a lot of people come and sit and go, and they don't Think about the, the, the bigger realities that are taking place in the life of the church. See, the church faced an enemy that is far greater than Nahash. And the consequence is far greater than just having your right eye plucked out. If your right eye was plucked out and you still went to heaven, it would still ultimately be a good deal for you. But what we face because of our sins is the wrath of God, the holy God, judges us for our sins against him. It's already been confessed today in this room. There is a penalty to pay for these sins, and you either pay it yourself on the final day, or Christ has come to offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement for your sins so that God's wrath against Jesus would be counted as the total and decisive victory against your sins so that you could cheer and celebrate with joy in the good news of this gospel. The Christian has a, a better victory than even they have here today from Nahash as we cherish God's salvation in Christ. It drives us into a renewed commitment to his kingdom. It's not just Jesus is my Savior, it's also Jesus is my Lord. It doesn't just save us, it pulls us into his family 
with Christ as the king who rules and reigns over us as his people. God is building a kingdom under a righteous king. You and me, we're subjects. We're subjects of the king. He is sovereign. And he calls us into a cherishing of the gospel that compels us to this commitment. Very, very important. Notice the order of operations here. Notice the events. They don't renew their commitment to God in order for God to win the victory for them. It's the opposite. They see the mighty power of God on display, and as they see the victory, it compels them to renew themselves to him in commitment to the kingdom. That is so essential for us as Christians. This narrative, even though it's Old Testament and it's, it's got weird names and an old story, it's, it's absolutely dripping with gospel application for us today. So you showed up today. Like, congratulations. You made it here to church, um, and we all found ourselves here today, and we are going out to battle. We're not battling Nahash. We're not battling Ammonites or Philistines. But in a very real way, you have a battle that you're facing even now, and it's not your, your in-laws, it's not your boss, it's not the place where you live, it's not the career path you've tried to get into and it's shut down on you. Your ultimate battle is against your own sin, your own heart, your own deception, your own unbelief, your own minimizing of the glory of God. That is the battle at hand. Will you conquer your sin or will you be conquered by it? Now, there's two ways that this battle can go terribly wrong. I want to talk about them just briefly. First is that you just deny the existence of the battle altogether. Like, it doesn't, it's not real. There is no battle in the heart. You're showing up here today, and this is pretty foreign to you, maybe, or you've never thought about this before, or maybe you're just like, life is really not that hard. It's, it's more of a staycation than a war zone. And that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. The enemy in Scripture, the, the, the sin of your heart, Satan who, who prowls around like a roaring lion, I promise you what he wants you to believe is that there is no battle at all. You're not even in the fights. You're not even trying. Your enemy will kick you when you're down. He will punch you where it hurts the most. He will show you no mercy. He will gouge out your right eye and worse, he will lead you to hell. The enemy is real, the battle is real, and, and the stakes are high. Eternal separation from God and, and, and the loss of the, the joy that has been purchased for us in Christ. So 1 Peter 5 says that this enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I just want to ask you, and I hope it's not, but is that person you? Is that person you? Because you're not even in the battle, you're not even aware Second way that this battle can be lost is you try to fight the battle in your own strength. You're like, all right, I, I'm in the game, I'm fighting, I'm going to fight against my sin, and you try to do it with all of your power, and you miss something critical about Christianity. I want you to notice something from the text. Saul was out in the field until the Spirit of God came upon him. Saul, Saul in and of himself doesn't have the goods. But when the Spirit of God comes upon him, then God uses Saul by the Spirit to save. The Spirit is the power in Saul's life. The Spirit is the power in your life. The, listen, the Spirit of God is the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, Ephesians tells us. That same powerful Spirit lives inside of you if you're a Christian. 
If you're a believer in Christ, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, and you're committed to following him and learning his ways, then that same spirit that, that empowered Jesus into the wilderness to suffer under the temptations of the devil, the spirit that drove Jesus' ministry and miracles, the spirit that took Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane where he, he sweat drops of blood, the spirit that walked Jesus up the hill of Calvary to take nails in his hands and into his feet and suffer the painful agony of being cursed in your place by the wrath of God, that same spirit is yours. That same power is yours. And the battle is meant to be fought in the power of that spirit. If you try to fight this in any other way other than dependency upon God's power to, to overcome your sin, you are essentially trying to be your own savior. And if you're anything like me, even though you're from the East Coast and I'm from the West Coast, you've probably found you're not very good at saving anyone. You quickly come to the end of your strength. You quickly begin to look around for someone who can save. And then the good news blows into the Jabesh Gilead part of your heart. The good news of salvation is coming. That news comes to you and tells you that there is someone who actually can save, and that one is Christ. I don't know your story here this morning. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never heard this good news, this gospel, but, but here it is. Jesus lived a perfect, faith-driven life of obedience to the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, because you couldn't do it yourself. Jesus did it because you couldn't do it yourself. And so the joy that we have this morning is not that we take up arms and we go to battle and fight in our own strength. We cherish the victory that God has already accomplished on our behalf through Christ the King, the one who has come the one who has died, the one who has been raised, the one who has ascended, the one who's coming back. We cherish the one who has done the victory for us, and our cherishing of this victory should compel us into a renewed commitment to the kingdom. What an amazing reality that God has committed to his kingly rule over you. He's protecting you from your fiercest enemies, and he's graciously leading you in the ways of the kingdom. Here's how I think about it. Even as real as your, I have a lot of problems. I have a lot of problems in my life. A lot of them. I had two problems come up last night at 10.30 at night by text. And I went to bed last night praying desperately. Lord, I don't know what to do about this. I need you. I, I'm literally, I can't do anything about it. You have problems, I have problems. But no matter how bad your problems are, here's the awesome news of the gospel. As real, as intense as your battles are, you are simply fighting in the after battle skirmishes. Because the war has already been won. Complete, total victory in Christ. So the call to arms for us is to fight for faith in the God who has already won the battle first so that we can wage war against our skirmishes with our sin and the sins of others and the brokenness of this world with confidence and to not fear by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you do every time you get together. So what did you do this weekend? Hopefully, you went to battle. You're doing battle right now 
We're doing battle together. Every time we get together, it's an opportunity to renew the kingdom. Now, I just want to move towards some application and close here, but the New Testament talks about kingdom quite a bit. And I want to just read a passage to you that, that as I prepared, this, this passage, it spoke to me somewhat prophetically. And I don't know if it'll speak to you that way, but it did for me. And I just want you to listen to it. It's from Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about the kingdom. And he says this. Maybe this specifically applies to you this morning. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore... Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your, listen, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God the Father knows what you need. Specifically, intentionally, he knows what you need. So what should we as Christians be seeking? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Christian is to seek the kingdom of God. Set your heart on God. Set your heart on Christ. Set your heart on God. Set your heart on God's providence, his intentionality, his purpose, his love. 1 Samuel 15 points us to Matthew 6 to seek first his kingdom. And if you're not in this kingdom, if you've not come under the rule of Christ, today is a day for you to experience salvation, to come into this kingdom of God. Nobody gets there by doing good works. We get there by trusting in the cherished victory of Christ. So what does it look like to live in the kingdom? This is the the last thing this morning I want to hit. God's kingdom is his rule and his reign over his subjects, normally in a particular land. What's awesome about the kingdom of God is that his his kingdom is multi-generational and it has no boundaries. So I'm in Phoenix in the kingdom serving the king. You're in West Philly as a believer in the kingdom serving the king. We're in the same kingdom together. And God's kingdom calls us to live a certain way. And I just want to exhort you as I close this morning two ways. One, do battle against personal sin. Battle for holiness. The reality is is that we're saved by grace, but we're not saved to just sort of like do nothing. We're saved by grace to do battle. So battle against your laziness. Battle against your lust. Battle against your pride. Battle against greed by the power of the gospel. I know I was talking to Ian about this, this November month for the men of the church, and there's a personal growth project as you guys essentially do battle together. That's the kind of way that the kingdom gets lived out, in community together. So do battle in that way, and then, and then secondly, 
you can serve this king wherever you are. I've been so blessed just listening to the different ministries that the church has, not the formal ministries and then the informal ways that you serve, that you serve Christ in this community. We're to build up this kingdom in service and in love. If we believe gospel doctrine and we submit to the king in the gospel and it produces a cherishing of the gospel and it produces a, a, a compelling drive to serve Christ in our holiness and in our efforts, there is literally nothing more powerful, more dynamic, more explosive in all of the earth than the local church. That is not hype. That is God's plan. So as you give yourself to bringing meals, as you give yourself to praying for one another, as you give yourself to serving, as you give yourself to sharing what you have with those who are less fortunate than you, as you give your expertise to bless those around you, under the rule of Christ, you are doing the kingdom work. You're doing battle. So I pray you've been encouraged this morning to do battle and to do it together. And uh, Ian, thank you for letting me come and preach God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that as we come to this time of communion, we are we're celebrating the kingdom that was inaugurated by the death of the son who broke his body and let his blood be spilled on a cross so that we could become royal subjects of the king by faith, united in Christ, and now joined together in mission for the sake of advancing this gospel to the nations grateful for this church. Lord, put your hand of favor upon them. Help them do battle. In Christ's name, amen.